This is lecture number 22 by Robert Benoit, Professor of Biblical Theological Seminary. This is lecture number two on the major prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 8 is one of the easier chapters to interpret, so I think it's a good place to start. We read in verses 1 and 2, quote, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me Daniel, after that which appeared unto me the first. And I saw in a vision that it came to pass, when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision, and I was by the river Ulai. Now you can ask the question of those two first verses, was Daniel in Elam? He says, I saw a vision, and it came to pass, when I saw that, I was at Shushan, in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. Was he there in person, or only in a vision? It seems to me most likely that it is in a visionary context that he finds himself in this place. The place, however, is significant, because Shushan was the capital of Elam. In Daniel's time, Elam and Shushan were within Belshazzar's kingdom. They weren't particularly significant places, however, but later Shushan became the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire, and it became a great city. In fact, it was a city inhabited until the Middle Ages. It's known today as Susa. The height of Persian rule was, of course, subsequent to the time of Daniel. But in the vision that he receives, it goes forward from Babylon to the Persian times and then to the Greek times. So this is the place in which he finds himself in this visionary situation. Then you read in Daniel chapter 8, verses 3 to 14 of his vision. I'm quoting, I've lifted up my eyes, and I saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward, and northward, and southward, so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will, and became great. And as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came over from the west, over the face of the whole earth, and didn't even touch the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and the goat ran into him with the fury of his power. And I saw him close to the ram, and as he moved with anger against the ram, he smote the ram, and broke the two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before the goat, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat grew very great, and when he was strong the great horn was broken, and for it, or in its plates, came four notable ones, that is, four notable horns, towards the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, and towards the east, and towards the pleasant land. And it grew great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and of the stars to the ground, and stamped on them. Yet he magnified himself even to the prince of the hosts, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of the sanctuary was cast down. 
and a host was given to him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And he cast down the truth to the ground, and it continued and prospered. Then I heard one saying, speaking to another, and said unto the saint that spoke, How long shall the vision concerning the daily sacrifices and transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. End quote. So that's the vision that Daniel saw. So verses 3 to 14 of chapter 8 describe the vision. Notice there are various animals depicted. A ram with two horns initially, then a he-goat with a single notable horn between his eyes that he uses to smite the ram and break its two horns. Then in verse 8 we have, After that, he-goat grows great, and the great horn is broken, and for it, or again in its place, came four notable horns towards the four winds of heaven. So you have these four notable ones, that is the horns that arise, and then verse 9 says, Out of one of them came a little horn that grew great. Now clearly the animals and the horns are to be understood as a series of symbols to depict certain events. The question is, what are the events? In this chapter, there are questions about some aspects and features of the chapter, but for the most part, there's not a great deal of doubt, because further on in the chapter, you have an interpretation given. So chapter 8, verses 1 to 14, you have this vision of the ram and the goat. But then, when we ask what it means, when we get to verses 20 to 27, there you have an interpretation of the vision. Now, before getting to that interpretation, we can cover that up for the moment. There's another thing that we want to look at before looking at verses 20 to 27. Verses 15 to 19 introduce that interpretation. You have in verse 17, you read that this Gabriel, who is going to make Daniel understand this vision, comes near, and you read, and I quote, He came near where I stood, and when he came I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for the time of the end shall be the vision. So you have that expression in the latter part of verse 17. But then you read, As he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face toward the ground, and he touched me and set me upright. And he said to me, Behold, I will make thee know. Now notice the last part of verse 19. I quote here, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall come. End quote. And so at the end of verse 17, you have this phrase, The time of the end shall be the vision. End quote. The end of verse 19 has, In the last end of indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall come. Again, quoting that. You can ask the question, what does that mean? Does all the vision relate to the end of the age? How are we to understand those expressions, first, at the time of the end, and at the last end of the indignation, at the appointed time the end shall be? Now, I think that's a question to keep in mind as you look at the interpretation. 
I might say just here that E.J. Young, the interpreter that we have quoted many times, suggests that what's in view with those expressions is the end of the Old Testament period. The phrase, quote, at the end part of the indignation, end quote, is the time God's judgment is on the people of Israel before the establishment of the new covenant. So it is the end of the Old Testament period that is in view here. It's the time before the establishment of the new covenant. Just keep that question in mind and let's go on to the interpretation found in verses 20 to 27. In verse 20 you read, quote, The ram which thou sawest having two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. End quote. So you go back to verses 3 and 4, and you can read 3 and 4 with a little more understanding, because 3 and 4 say, quote, I beheld this ram, it had two horns, the two horns were high, one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so no one could stand before this ram, end quote. It's interesting the way verse 3 says the ram had two horns. The two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. That suggests that Media was important before Persia was, and that fits in with what we know historically of Media and Persia. The Medians became independent of Assyria at about 631 B.C. The Persians began as an insignificant section of the Median Empire, but the Persians rose to control the Median Empire, and that was done largely through Cyrus, who brought Media under his control. Many Medes were given places of responsibility in the kingdom of Cyrus, but you see the picture here fits very well. This ram has two horns. The two horns are high. One's higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. That's the Persian element of the Medo-Persian kingdom. I've got a map here of the Persian Empire just to give you an idea of its extent. The area with those lines goes up through Asia Minor, well down into Egypt, and well towards the east. So that's verse 20 of the interpretation, where we read, The ram which you saw having two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Then we go to verse 21, and I'm quoting, and the rough goat, or the he-goat, is the king of Greece, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. End quote. And you read in verse 21, I must just mention before going on to that, you notice in verse 4, the ram pushed westward, northward, and southward, so that no one could stand before him. That is exactly what we see there with the Persian Empire, which is westward, northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him. And then you read in verse 5 that the he-goat from the west, verse 21 identifies him as the king of Greece, comes in. And verse 5 says, quote, As I was considering, this vision that is, Behold, the he-goat came up from the west over the face of the whole earth, but touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had the two horns and ran it to him with the fury of his power. End quote. We know it was Alexander the Great from Greece that attacked the Persian Empire. Alexander pushed coming from Greece and was able to destroy Persia. And you notice verse 5 says of this he goat or rough goat that he came from the west over the whole face of the earth and didn't touch the ground, and that's an indication 
of the rapidity of Alexander's conquest. He was very swift. And then in verses 6 to 7, these describe the way in which Alexander took Persia. Quote, He smote the ram and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to stand before him. And he cast him to the ground and stamped on him. And the he-goat grew very great. End quote. Now, when you look at Alexander's conquests, the black line on the map that I have before you, this gives you the extent of Alexander's kingdom. It was a swift conquest, but involved a number of key battles. In 334 BC, you had a battle at the river Granicus, which is right here in northwest Asia Minor. That was the first victory in Asia Minor over the Persian forces in 334 BC. One year later, you have the Battle of Issus, and that's in 333 BC, and that's right here at the northern corner where the Mediterranean turns south along the Asian coast. Alexander crossed the Taurus Mountains, defeated the main Persian army at Issus, and that enabled him to come down the coast to take Syria, Palestine, and go all the way into Egypt. So we have a key battle, the Battle of Issus in 333 B.C. In 331, way to the east, Arbila is another point of battle, and we have the Battle of Arbila in 331, where he destroyed the remnants of the Persian army, won the empire, and then he moved on from Arbila towards the Indus River, all the way here to the east. So you see, that's from 334 to 331. In three years, he swept away the Persians. But then you read in verse 8, quote, The he-goat grew very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it, or in its place, came four notable horns towards the four winds of heaven. End quote. You may wonder, what in the world does this mean? And then you look at verse 22 that says, quote, Now that being broken, that is the big horn, four stood up for it in its place, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nations, but not by his power. End quote. Well, again, what does that mean? Well, let's see what's going on historically at the time after Alexander. What you find is, historically, when Alexander was at the height of his strength, he died at the age of 33 years. So when he was strong, the great horn was broken, as verse 8 says. So you have an enormous kingdom and a powerful man, but he dies very young, and what's going to happen to his kingdom? He had an illegitimate child of two or three years old, so he didn't really have a suitable son to take over his throne. He had married a daughter of the Persian king just a few months before his death, and some thought maybe a child will come from that relationship. There was a lot of confusion and a struggle for power, but within a few years after Alexander's death, it turned out that his empire broke into four parts. Initially there were five, but one part wasn't stable, and so the whole thing settled down to four sections of his kingdom, with several of his generals seizing large areas of his empire for themselves. Those kingdoms look something like this on the map, and this is in the year 301. You have Macedonia under Cassander, Thrace and Asia Minor under initially Lysimachus and Antigonus. Lysimachus is up here, Asia Minor is under Antigonus, and then Syria to the east is under Seleucus, and Egypt to the south under General Ptolemy. 
The rule of Antigonus did not last long, so you basically wind up with Seleucus, Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Cassander as the four parts of Alexander's original kingdom. It's Antigonus, as I mentioned, who didn't last long. It was Antigonus who was overthrown by Seleucus. So you get four parts then that survive, as I mentioned before, Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. The four kingdoms that you read about in verse 22, it says, shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. And that means they are not going to be under the power of the original king, Alexander, but under the power of four kings that come after him. Then you read in verse 9, that out of one of them, that is, one of these four kingdoms, came forth a little horn which grew exceedingly great. And you ask, what is that? And then you go over to the interpretation in verse 23, and I'm quoting, In the latter times of the kingdoms, that is, these four kingdoms, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall rise up, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper and continue, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his powers also he shall cause deceit to prosper, and his hand shall magnify himself and his heart. By peace he shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without end. End quote. So, in the latter times of this kingdom, the king with the fierce countenance is going to arise. In other words, it's not right at the beginning of the kingdom. And the question can be asked, who is in view here? Is this the Antichrist who is to come at the end of the age? You see, verse 17 says, quote, A time of the end shall be the vision. End quote. Is this the Antichrist at the end of the age? Or is there some reason to think that it is not the Antichrist? I think verse 9 is quite clear. Verse 9 says, quote, out of one of them, end quote. And who is the them that is referred to here? Well, it refers back to the four notable kings, the four horns towards the four winds of heaven. The four parts of Alexander's kingdom is being discussed. This person that we're discussing, the little horn, is going to rise out of one of the four parts of Alexander's kingdom. So you're in the context of Alexander's empire and its divisions, and a ruler is coming out of one of these divisions. So I think that you have in chapter 8, here you have that the Lord gives a vision to Daniel to show the Lord's people that after the Persians, who had taken over Babylon in Daniel's time, after the Persians will come the Greek Empire, and that in the course of time, in the time of the Greek Empire, there is going to be a great difficulty to face. Specifically, this king of fierce continents, who is going to arise. Now, historically, we know that in the Seleucid Empire, one of those four divisions, Antiochus Epiphanes, or also known Antiochus IV, became a very strong ruler. He conquered the Ptolemaic Empire, or almost captured it, as the struggle went back and forth. We read in verse 11, He magnified himself. He magnified himself even to the prince of the host, we read. You notice his name, Antiochus Epiphanes. That Epiphanes, by the way, means manifestation. 
And what is it a manifestation of? A manifestation of God. No, not the God of the Old Testament, but he thought of himself as a manifestation of Zeus, the principal Greek god. He wanted to be worshipped, and from what we know of him, he exhibited the characteristics that are described here. He stormed Jerusalem, and he defiled the temple. The background for that was this. He had gone down to Egypt in the realm of the Ptolemies and was just about to defeat the Ptolemies of Egypt when the Romans sent a force to Egypt because the Romans did not want the Seleucids to consolidate their power over the Egyptians. It would be too major a power against the Romans. The Romans had their own ideas about controlling the Mediterranean, so they sent a force to Egypt. And this Roman general who went there met Antiochus just outside of Alexandria. And there's a story that's told about the encounter between Antiochus and the general. They, in fact, had known each other because Antiochus had been a prisoner in Rome some time earlier. But this Roman general, Popelius Linnaeus, told Antiochus that he had to give back the area taken and to vacate Egypt. We have heard a lot about this desert storm war in Iraq recently, about drawing a line in the sand. I think that the origin of that expression, drawing a line in the sand, comes from this incident in Egypt when this Roman general drew a line in the sand. And in fact, that line was a circle, and it went around Antiochus. The Roman general told Antiochus that he needed to vacate Egypt, and Antiochus said he needed to think about it. And in the course of thinking about the demands of the Romans, this Roman general, Popelius Linnaeus, drew this circle around Antiochus and told him he had all the time he wanted to think about the Roman injunction as long as he stayed within that line. So Antiochus was humiliated. He knew he didn't have the forces to fight the Romans, and so he had to retreat. Then he retreated. But as he retreated, he vented his anger on the Jews. He came into Jerusalem. He defiled the temple, broke down the walls of the city, sold women and children as slaves, and banned the Jewish faith. Observance of the Sabbath and circumcision were forbidden on the sentence of death. The Old Testament scriptures were burned. Images of Greek gods were set up in all the cities of Judah, and the Jews were forced to worship them. If you don't do it, you were told you would be tortured and killed. In the temple itself, a kind of altar was erected in which swine were offered just to antagonize the Jewish people, and the whole temple was sprinkled with fat from the offerings of the swine. The result, in the end, was the Maccabean Revolt around 168 B.C. The Romans had just defeated Macedonia in the Third Macedonian War, so they had been themselves expanding eastward into Macedonia. They must have been fairly powerful at that time, and they had just come off their victory, so it must have been quite a force, and as a result of that, Antiochus was intimidated by them, and he did not want to fight them in Egypt. Well, I want to look a bit further at verses 9 to 14. There's some rather obscure phrases there, but let's stop at this point, and we'll get a bit further with Daniel 8, beginning in the next hour. This ends lecture number two on the prophet Daniel by Robert Vinoy, and this is a continuation of lecture number 22 of Vinoy's lectures on the major prophets. Mm -hmm.